You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. We're just going to pick up where we left off uh, before the Easter season. And I think for the sake of... uh, Context and the fact that it's been a few weeks since we've been in Genesis 4. Why don't I just start reading with verse 1? And we're going to read through uh, verse 15. 1 through uh, 15. I invite you to follow along as I read. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. From your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning, Father, that you may teach us and instruct us that, Father, you would even search us and know us and reveal to us our hidden faults for your glory and for our welfare, Father. Uh, Apply these passages, Lord, to our hearts and open our hearts, Father, to your precious truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. It's always wonderful to return to the stories of Jesus' triumphal entry, you know, on Palm Sunday. And it's always wonderful to return to the stories of Christ's resurrection. And I I think that last week uh, in John chapter 20, we were probably looking at one of the most beautiful stories that we have in all of Scripture Namely, the story of the resurrected Jesus revealing himself to Mary Magdalene. It's such a 
powerful story of, uh, of, a, of a heart that's really throbbing uh, just to pay one last act of adoration and devotion uh, to uh, her Lord, uh, only to discover that her Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, has risen from the grave. And what, what a wonderful melody. Uh, what a powerful melody uh, that is. What a, what a game changer uh, that is, the power of the resurrection. And as wonderful of a story that is, I think the story that we've just read in contrast is probably about as dark, almost as dark uh, as that story uh, is wonderful. We come to a really dark passage. I thought a little bit about um, do we want to return back to Genesis 4 on our 10th anniversary celebration and go to a really dark passage? Maybe I should go to Solomon's dedication of the temple or something like that and do a, a you know, a, a hurrah, hurrah kind of uh, sermon for this morning. And, and that isn't, that just isn't what worked out. And uh, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, what better way to commemorate uh, 10 years of ministry here than to just do what we do. We go verse by verse, don't we? We don't um, pick through the scriptures and look for the stories that we like the best and spend our time on those. Uh, we start at the beginning, or at least in this case, we start near the beginning. We didn't start at the beginning of Genesis uh, in our study of Genesis. We started at Genesis 3.15. Reasons for that I won't repeat, but um, or I won't go into over again, but nevertheless, we are systematically, we systematically work our way through the stories and we let the Holy Spirit determine when uh, the story comes and when the story goes or what story we're studying. Uh, so we're not going to skip over some of these dark passages. But I, I'll remind you of something that I said a few weeks ago, and I've said it several times, is whenever we're studying Scripture, and we come to a dark place, and there are many dark places in Scripture. There's always grace nearby, isn't there? You ever notice that? Grace is always right there. And as dark as this story is, we're going to discover that there's grace right there. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Genesis, so I think a review will certainly be helpful. Uh, learning is like painting a wall. We don't want to put it all. We don't want to put all the paint on the wall at once. If we do, it all runs to the floor and makes a mess, doesn't it? Uh, we do a little bit at a time. Uh, some of you will recall that when we completed our study of Genesis 3 and we turned to Genesis 4, I'd made a comment that when we turn from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4, we turn from life inside the Garden of Eden to life outside the Garden of Eden. We turn from life inside the paradise of Eden, of Eden to life outside. In chapter 4, verse 1, we learn that Adam and Eve are blessed by the Lord. They conceive. Eve bears a son. His name is Cain. And there, if you look with me, Eve makes a profession of faith. And I developed that a few weeks ago. She says, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. And as I pointed out in an earlier message, the Lord had promised a Savior. If you look back to Genesis 3 and verse 15, there we have the first utterance of the gospel and scripture. Comes at the heels of the fall. Adam and Eve rebel against God and God gives the gospel promise. He says, I will put enmity between you. That is uh, Satan himself 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, what God is promising here is that he is promising a savior, a savior who will be born of the woman. And with a promise like that given to Adam and Eve, and now with the blessing of a child, I think it's very fair for us to say that Adam and Eve would have looked at their firstborn son uh, as at least a potential candidate for the Messiah, probably looking at him as the promised one who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent, if you will, come and uh, destroy the works of the devil and liberate everything that has been lost. At the very least, they would have considered him to be a potential candidate. And this results in words of praise. And you may recall that when we were studying the first five verses of this chapter, I pointed your attention to the worship that's going on here. I think it's really interesting and significant that as soon as we turn from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4, in other words, as soon as we turn from life inside the Garden of Eden to life outside of the Garden of Eden, the first major theme that we run into in life outside of the Garden is worship. It's the first major theme that we come to, is worship. And I think we really miss that today. Um, you know, over the, the course of the 20th century, there was a large emphasis on salvation, especially salvation as it concerns our personal relationship with Jesus. And please don't nobody misunderstand me here. I don't want anyone to leave here and say that Rick said, you know, salvation is not important. Worship is. Um, everybody, salvation is very important. I don't want to be misunderstood here. Worship is also very important. And in fact, worship is the whole point of salvation. God doesn't bring us into a right relationship with him so that we can just keep going on and going on like nothing has ever happened to us. Perish that thought. Perish that thought. Because if we can keep on going like nothing's ever happened to us, in all likelihood, nothing has happened to us. I think it's significant that chapter 4 is the first look outside of the Garden of Eden. And the first thing that we see here is words of praise. Eve says, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. It's a word of praise. In verse 2, Adam and Eve are blessed again with the birth of a second son, Abel. And of course, this is a, an introduction to verses 3 and 4 where we, we find what? We find Cain and Abel in formal worship in verses 3 and 4. You know, there's a time advancement here that I brought out. Um, uh, you know, pro probably a, a, an advancement of time of maybe a, a, a couple of decades. Because... Cain and Abel are born and then uh, their vocations are listed and then uh, there they are in public worship, uh, offering their sacrifices. Um, again, uh, notice in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4 that in verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the 
of the firstborn of his flock, of their fat portions. And notice the wording here. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Uh, In other words, God is pleased with Abel and his worship. God is not pleased with Cain and his worship. The word order here is very important, and it's something that the Reformers brought out over and over again, that the word order, the order, it goes like this. God first looks to the person. He first looks to the worshiper. Then he looks to the worship. Uh, Do you see that there? Uh, God first looks to the person, then to the worship. We have a tendency to do the exact opposite. For one reason, we don't have access to one another's heart. We don't know what's in one another's heart. All we really can do is look to the actions. But God knows the heart and he looks first to the heart. Now, we might ask ourselves this question this morning. What is the principal difference between Abel and his offering or Abel and his worship and Cain and his worship? Well, the author to the letter of Hebrews offers commentary on that. In Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews the The author says uh, that Abel offered a better sacrifice or it says this way in faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. The chief and principal difference between these two is one is offering his worship in faith, whereas the other Cain is just simply going through the motions. He's just simply going through the motions. Now, this covers really the entire spectrum of worship. All of the worship that will take place today can be described in one of these two categories. It's it's worship that's being offered in faith with the heart and it's worship that just goes through the motions. Uh, It all can be, these are the only two categories that we have. And as we speak, worship is taking place all over the world. It's taking place everywhere. And there are some who are worshiping God with a heart that knows and trusts God's promises, a heart that's been changed by those promises, a heart that uh, embraces these promises. And then there are others who are just going through the motions. And here is a call for us uh, to, to search our hearts, isn't it? It's a call for us to search our hearts. We might echo the psalmist who says, who prays to the Lord and says, Lord, search me and know me and reveal my hidden faults. Um, As I've been studying these passages, a text that just keeps coming to my mind over and over again is the text that we um, that we looked at this morning as our scripture memory verse, Hebrews chapter three, verse 12, which reads again, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This sets us up, doesn't it? It sets us up for what comes next because Cain here is a textbook example of a man with an unbelieving heart. And this this is the course. This is the path that we that we have here. This is the road that an unbelieving heart takes us down. It's the road that Cain follows. Cain realizes that the Lord has accepted Abel and his sacrifice. Cain also realizes that the Lord has not accepted him or his sacrifice. How does he react to this? The text tells us that he's furious. He is furious. How does the Lord react to Cain? 
here's where we begin to see some grace. We see grace all over this passage. It's dark. It's really dark. But we see the heart of God in it everywhere. How does the Lord react to Cain's anger? Look at verse 6 and the amazing mercy and grace that God shows him. The Lord asks Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Now, why do I say that's such an act of mercy and grace? First of all, God is not asking these questions for his benefit, is he? Does God need this information? Is he lacking information about about Cain and where Cain is? Absolutely not. So why would God ask these questions? It's because he's a father. He's an incredible father. And Cain, Cain is lost. And the father wants Cain to see his lost condition. Cain, think this through. Why are you so upset, Cain? What's, what are you so upset about? In verse 7, words of encouragement. If you do well, will you not be accepted? I mean, God is showing him the way here. He's showing him the way. Now, we can, we can really misstep right here with verse 7, can't we? If we're not careful with verse 7, and I, I brought this out in an earlier message, if we're not careful, in fact, we use verse 7 as a scripture memory verse one Sunday morning, remember? And I said, listen, let's be careful with this. Because if we, if we take the most natural interpretation of verse 7, and we don't put it under the scrutiny of the rest of the teaching of the Bible, we can think, listen, uh, we get right with God by getting our act together. That's not how we get right with God. It's important that we get this. The Lord is not telling Cain that he can enjoy God's acceptance simply by getting his act together. God is not the kind of God that only loves us when we're doing good and doesn't love us when we're doing bad. It's so easy for us to think that way. It's so natural for us to feel that way, but that's not who God is. That's not the heart of God. Here God is extending love and mercy and kindness to Cain while Cain is furious with him. That's simply not what God is like. It's not what he is like. And fact of the matter is, if we could get our act together perfectly from today forward and live a perfect life from today forward, how would we atone for the sins that we've already committed? How would we atone for those? I'm... What, what, would, what would we do? Now, some in our culture will say, Rick, Rick, I got the answer to that. I raise my hand, I got the answer. The good works that we would do would erase the bad ones that we've done. The good works that we do, you see, those, those will make up for all the bad stuff. How many times do you hear that? Maybe we've thought that in our own hearts a time or two. Man, if I start doing really good, then God will really love me and it'll make up for all the stuff that I've done. That comes so natural to us, doesn't it? I mean, that's like the first thing that comes. But, but the problem is, Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In other words, good works cannot atone for bad ones. They just can't. They can't do it. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, the Old Testament believers, they were saved by works and the New Testament believers are saved by faith. That's another really popular, really common um, misunderstanding of the Old Testament. 
the Old Testament believers weren't saved by getting their act together. They were saved by faith. And when Paul was showing us how to enjoy salvation, he pointed to Abraham. Abraham is an Old Testament guy. Abraham is an Old Testament guy. Uh, and we could ask ourselves this question, how was Abraham brought into a right relationship with God? The answer is in Genesis 15, verse 6, which is an Old Testament book. And Genesis 15, 6 tells us that Abraham believed God and God credited that to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by believing in the promises, just like we are. Old Testament, New Testament folks saved the same way. Everyone saved the same way. Old Testament folks look forward to the Messiah. We look back to the Messiah who has already came. Same, same. Paul picks this up in Romans 4 and says, quote, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is the way of salvation for Old Testament and New Testament believers alike. So what is God saying to Cain? If, if you'll allow me some contemporary, if you'll give me some, um, some contemporary liberty here, um, let, let, me, let, me, let me act this out and how it, it might sound today. It's like the Lord is saying this, you know, Cain, quit going through the motions, Cain. Quit going through the motions. Come on, I, 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 see, I see your worship. I see you come in and you sit down. And I see you standing up. And I see you sitting down. I see you kneeling. I see you praying. I see you going through all these motions. Quit going through the motions, Cain. I, I have a message for you, Cain. I'm sending you a savior. I'm making you a promise. Put your faith in that, in that promise. Look at Genesis 3.15. Cain, get your Bible up. Look at Genesis 3.15. I'm promising you that one will come who will liberate all will liberate my people from everything that has been lost. Put your faith in this trust. This is a game changer, Cain. Put your faith in. Put your faith in this, Cain. I love the world so much that I'm going to send my son into the world that he may die, so that you may live. Cain, look to him. Cain, I will send him. Cain, he will come. That's the gospel, isn't it? How's that affected Cain? Well, so far the gospel has not moved Cain. He mentally assents to it because he's going through the motions. He is showing up with a, with a sacrifice. He's, he's in church on Sunday. He's there, but his heart is unchanged. God, of course, says the same thing to us. It's not hard to make the application there, is it? God says, I've so loved the world that I gave my only son that whoever believes in him should never perish, but have eternal life. And once our eyes are open to this, it's a game changer, isn't it? It's truly a game changer. And we can only enjoy salvation by trusting in, in Christ Jesus. Our sins can only be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. There is no other way to atone for our sins. But this is a game changer. Because we can know that our sins have been perfectly covered. 
And that can liberate us from all of the guilt and all the stuff that goes on with that. I mean, we really truly can be set free because we have such a perfect salvation in Christ Jesus. Coming, saving faith in the promised Messiah truly changes hearts. And we might ask ourselves, I mean, as we, as we look to our hearts this morning and we, we, we um, uh, just to, to look at our faith, you know, what should we be looking for? You know, as I said just a few minutes ago, you know, this this is a call for us to look to our hearts. Well, when we look to our hearts, what should we be looking for? Well, we should be looking for a changed worldview. I mean, does our does our world and life center on Jesus now? And don't don't get me wrong. Some of you are really sensitive. You're going to think, man, I want I want my life to center on Jesus, but it doesn't too much of the time. I'm not saying it's going to be perfect because it isn't going to be perfect. Mine isn't perfect either. In this lifetime, it's not going to be perfect. But is there a new principle in your heart? A principle that says, listen, this is what I'm striving for. I'm striving for a heart that's centered on Jesus. That's really what I desire. That's really what I want. And as you look to your heart, what about your values? Are your values changed? Are you striving for values that look more and more like Jesus? And again, don't, some of you are really sensitive and say, man, that's not me. Yeah, but are you striving for it? Do you desire that? And speaking of desires, I mean, do you desire to please the Lord? Is that a desire when you wake up in the morning to please the Lord? Generally speaking, is that our new principle that's in your heart? If it is, those are marks of saving faith. And we ask ourselves these questions. And if the answer is no to all of these, then it is possible that there is still yet an unbelieving heart beating in our soul. And that is certainly the case with Cain. There's an unbelieving and evil heart beating in his soul. And that's why God says in verse 7, if you look there with me, he says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Uh, the language here is language like a, an animal, um, like a wild animal, like imagine opening your door and seeing a bear in your backyard. Um, that's the language. Sin is literally crouching um, at the door. Uh, its desire is to destroy. So we see how God so mercifully warns Cain. We see the patience and mercy of God in the way that he deals with Cain. It's like he said, listen, Cain, unbelief is trying to ruin you. If it gets its way, Cain, it's going to ruin you. Cain, it's going to ruin you. You must not give in to it. Come with me, Cain. And we see how graciously the Lord is dealing with Cain. Cain is furious. It's important that we see this. That Cain is mad. He is furious with God. And remember, I, I pointed a, a quote from Calvin a couple of weeks ago. where Calvin says it like this. He says, if Cain could have reached up in heaven and grabbed God by the throat and pulled him down off of his throne, that's what Cain would have done. That's what an unbelieving heart will do. Because an unbelieving heart doesn't, doesn't want God meddling with their lives. I want to live it this way. I want to do this. I want to do this. I don't really want these purse strings upon me. If Cain could reach God and pull him down, that's what he would do. Yet God meets him with such mercy and kindness. How does Cain respond? How does he respond? Does Cain repent? Does Cain looked to his heart and said, you know what, Lord, you're right. My heart isn't right with you. I am just, this is just a facade. I am just going through the motions here. 
Uh, this, this is, you're, you're right, Lord. I, I, I see this. I admit to it fully. I don't want my heart to be like this. Does Cain fall down and ask the Lord to forgive him and take him? Take me, O Lord, and transform me so that I can be a servant. Does he do this? Is this his attitude? Verse eight answers. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field. Cain rose up against his brother. And killed him. That's Cain's response. It's a response of murder committed in jealous fury. The average person on this path does not murder. The average person who's on this path does not go and kill his or her brother or sister. The average person who's on this path right now just walks away. They just walk away. But a murder is still committed. It's the murder of their very own soul. If we were to set our story to music right now, I think I hear a cello playing in the low register in a minor key. This is a minor key. Verse 9. How's the Lord respond? This is so amazing. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Oh, there's an opportunity for Cain to come clean. I mean. Does Cain come clean? Does Cain ask for God's forgiveness? Fortunately, no. Notice the the bold and callous response that Cain offers. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Let's all be honest with ourselves. We can recognize that tone, can't we? You ever been called on the carpet, called to the carpet on something and respond with a similar response? We can certainly see it truly is a mirror. The scripture truly is a mirror. I mean, we can we 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 can see ourselves in this hard attitude, can't we? We can recognize it. We can all look to a time in our lives when we've been called to the carpet and we've responded just like this. Verse 10, the Lord's not finished. The Lord says to Cain, what have you done? Again, does God need that information? Is God lacking? He says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The Lord knows what Cain has done, but God is a father. He's a loving parent. At the present, Cain has not really come to grips with what he has done. I mean, not truly. When we heard our parents say, what have you done? What did our parents mean by that question? We've heard our parents say that, haven't we? Mine was usually prefaced with a Ricky Lee. That was what mine was prefaced with. You have yours, don't you? That's what mine sounded like. Why would our parents ask us what we've done when they know what we've done? 
It's because there's a breach in the relationship. It's a breach that can only be repaired one way. And that's by repentance. Our parents are giving us the opportunity to come clean so that the relationship can be restored. Sometimes our parents would speak to us in this way and they'd be angry. You know why they're angry? Because they're afraid. I don't want to lose my son. I don't want to lose my daughter. This is the wrong path. What have you done? It's love. It's the sound of love. God continues in verse 11. He says, Now, Cain, you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. I hear that cello again. So far, no human being has underwent God's curse. This is the first time. Some of us say, well, Adam and Eve, they're cursed. No, they're not. Read Read the story. God doesn't curse Adam and Eve. He curses the ground because of them. He doesn't curse them. He curses the ground because of them. Cain is cursed. The Lord knows what Cain has done. There's still mercy here. How can we say there's mercy here? Well, so far God has spared Cain's life, hasn't he? He's committed murder. But Cain's life is about to change. Verse 12, the Lord says to Cain, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. What is meant here by this is it's now going to be difficult for Cain's a farmer. And now it's going to be really difficult for him to raise crops. And uh, if you're a farmer in this culture, and I suppose if you're a farmer in any culture, you recognize how much you need the Lord to have a, a crop. Because you get out there and till that ground and you put the seed in it and thereafter that is not much you can do. You know, your success is dependent on the weather. And it it was believed when you had a good crop, you had the Lord's presence. You had the Lord's blessing. And it's rightly believed that way. And what's Cain to to see of this? Well, I no longer have the Lord's presence. The crops, they're not going to grow like they once would. And furthermore, notice Cain's going to be a fugitive and a wanderer. In other words, you'll be a person who's always running and hiding, running and hiding from the inevitable. So Cain now lives to be a warning to everyone else. He's a warning to everyone else, everyone in his own generation and everyone in ours. Warning that there's no rest apart from trusting God. Unbelief always leaves us worrying. Unbelief always leaves us anxious. It should be no surprise that our current culture is one of the most anxious cultures that's been around in in decades. That's because unbelief always yields that. God's not going to let us be comfortable in unbelief. Why? Because he's a loving father and he wants to bring us back. 
He wants us to come to our senses. He wants us to come to a realization that his arms are wide open to receive all who come to him. So he's not going to leave us comfortable that way. Unbelief will always leave us anxious and worrying and fugitive and running and we'll be just like the evil one. The evil one, where is his home? You know, in the opening chapters of Job, the Lord asked Satan, where have you been? Well, I've been going to and fro. You know, he's wandering around. There's no peace for him. He's wandering around. There's no resting place. There's no resting place for unbelief. There's nothing. Unbelief renders us fugitives and wandering. It's the lot of the evil one and it's the lot of all of his children. But in Christ, there is peace. In Christ, there is peace. In Christ, we have a home. Jesus says, in my father's house are many mansions. And I go there to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. There's a home. There's peace. This brings us to verse 13 and 14. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Verse 14, behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wonder on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. There's something dreadfully wrong here. Do you see something missing in verses 13 and 14? What's what's missing in verses 13 and 14? What's missing is remorse. Remorse. There's no remorse. Cain's not concerned about whether his actions are right or wrong. He's only concerned about the mess he's in. I I had to learn that one, you know, the hard way. Early on, doing counseling, people would come to me and they'd go on and on and on. And I'd think, boy, the Lord's really in this. And they'd be going on and on and on. And I'd think, boy, the Lord's really in this. And then one day it dawned on me, you know, like half these folks are just whining about their consequences. That's, that's all they're doing. The Lord's not in that at all. This is a natural thing for us. I, I couldn't get onto the scent of any kind of scent that I've offended God. That's what you want to look for when you're talking to people to see if the Lord's in it. If the Lord's in it, there's going to be an awakening. David says in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. That's true repentance. It's a given that we have done each other bad. That's a given. But in our Bible study on Wednesday, we were talking about the fact that by virtue of each one of us being created by God, we're each God's possession. And every time we violate each other, we we violate something that belongs to God. So ultimately, we're violating God with every violation, aren't we? feel like a complete hypocrite speaking this way because I'm so mindful of how many times I've committed what I'm talking about here. So please, everyone, I don't want anyone to get the impression here that I think I got this down. I don't. This is the text. This is what it says. Cain is not concerned about his actions being right or wrong. He has no regard. We don't see any evidence here that he's that he has any regard about Abel's life. And what about his mom? She's just lost a son. 
What about, his, what about dad? He's just lost a son. It's nothing. Cain has no regard for how his action has affected the Lord. And this is the big one. The unbelieving heart does not concern itself with how the Lord is affected by his actions. That's the big one. Uh, that's as we look to our hearts. That's what we want to look for. Listen, we're all sinners. We're all doing things wrong. The difference between a believer and unbeliever is a believer realizes only by God's grace does he or she realize. I've committed a sin against God. My biggest problem is I'm sinning against him, the one who's loved me and given me everything. These are the marks of an unbelieving heart. No regard for God. And furthermore, they're the marks of an unrepentant heart. And as an unbelieving heart hardens, it cares little about how others are affected. God once again offers grace to Cain. God promises protection. Cain says, whoever finds me will kill me. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, not so. God's going to offer him protection. You see what I mean? No matter how dark the passage is, there's still grace. Is that what we would do? Is there any of us that would do that? No, Cain, I'm, I'm going to protect you for a time. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. What do we say in conclusion to this story? In this passage, we see the perilous fate of a man who refuses God's mercy and grace each step of the way. I think that's the biggest lesson we got here, isn't it? Or am I missing something? I'm open if I'm missing something. So much grace. Cain has received so much grace. Each step along the way. Just like the average life, each step of the way receives so much grace. So much grace. This is the path and progress of unbelief. It's the road of unbelief. It's the danger of unbelief. What about all the patience God showered on Cain? What about all the mercy God showered on Cain? What about all the grace God has afforded Cain? It's only served to harden Cain's heart. When I was doing ministry at Columbia County Jail, I used to say that. I used to, I used to beat that string a lot. When the men and women would come in for the services. I'd do three services out there. Three different populations. Misdemeanor male, then female uh, in the FSJ, and then male in the FSJ. And when they would come in, I would say to them, one of the first things I would say to them was, listen, you're, you know, you're going to be different when you leave here than when you come in. I just, I just said it just to say, listen, this is serious. Let's get serious here. You're going to be different. You're going to be different after this is over. You're not going to, you're, you're not going to pick, they would carry their chairs in and set them down. I'd say, you're not going to pick your chair up and go back out that door the same way you come in the door. And they would get silent in there. And they'd want to know why. And I'd say, because there's no neutrality under the gospel. You're either going to come closer to God or you're going to go further away from him. But you will not stay the same. Cain doesn't stay the same. One commentator puts it this way. Each successive advancement of mercy resulted in a more rigid shutting of Cain's heart. Each, each advancement, 
successive advancement of mercy resulted in a more rigid shutting of Cain's heart. That's why I keep thinking of Hebrews. Hebrews has so much commentary on this. We could think of Hebrews quoting Psalm 95, which we read in our opening passage, Psalm 95, where the psalmist says, listen, today if you hear God's voice, do not what? Do not harden your heart. I have opened the scriptures this morning. You have heard God's voice. Do not harden your heart. And listen, loved ones, I am saying the exact same thing to myself here. May I not harden mine either. Let us take care, lest there be in any of us an unbelieving heart that would lead any of us to fall away from the beauty of our Savior. Let me end on that note. As Jesus, as we think about the triumphal entry, at one point the gospel writers tell us that Jesus stops as he's looking at Jerusalem. And he weeps, doesn't he? This is the heart of our Savior. Took me a long time to learn this one. I, I've shared with all of you that um, for about a period of nine months, I believed I needed Jesus. And I believed Jesus could save me, but I just couldn't see for the life of me why he would want to. But there on that hill, Jesus looks out at Jerusalem and he says, all day long. All day long, he's opened his heart to them. He looks out upon Jerusalem and he weeps because they did not know the way of peace. We do know the way of peace. Let's be sure that we take it. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it's much more fun to preach on John 20 than to preach on Genesis 4, 1 through 15. But Father, we know that you've given us a complete word. I, John, I would rather preach John 20. It's no fun to preach John it's no fun to preach Genesis 4. But Father, we know that you've given us this word and it's for our instruction. And Father, we can see what an important thing this is to just tell each other that you are love and just to tell each other that, that you're merciful and just to tell each other that we can have all these things in you, but to not tell each other that we, we need to repent. We need to believe that we need you for every single thing that we do, Father, it's, it's foolish to do this. Father, we work our way through your word each step of the way, Father, so that we might have this balance, the balance that you, the Holy Spirit, have given us, that we would truly drink of the whole counsel of God and not just the portions that we like the best. Father, there's so much here for us to think about as we Look to our hearts and Father, some of us who are really sensitive will say, you know, sometimes I do come in here and I just go through the motions. And Father, that is so true, even of even of those, Father, who, who really their lives have been changed by your grace and have come to uh, have come to a saving faith. Father, we come in here sometimes and that's all we do is go through the motions. Father, forgive us, we pray. And Father, we thank you for your mercy and kindness and. And Father, we, um, we look to you, Lord, 
to dispatch that saving grace. That if there's anyone here this morning who has not is yet to come, who is yet to come in saving faith, Father, we pray that Lord, you would open up eyes, open up ears, open up hearts, that Father, all may see the beauty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in His precious name. Amen. And amen.